Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. change our relationships with data, with insights and the technology around us, and it may evolve over time. But there is a complexity to the current data environment that's already beyond anything that we can ourselves understand. Is it important for the US to beat China on every aspect of AI? I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure it's not even realistic. We have to think about what is it that we're actually trying to protect? What are the risks we're trying to mitigate? And what is the consequence if we go too hard in this global geopolitical competition around AI? Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, Director of the CSIRO National Artificial Intelligence Centre, Stella Sola, and Director, Executive and Professional Development at the National Security College, Olivia Shen, join Dr. Will Stoltz. They discuss the complexities of artificial intelligence and the strategic implications of the global competition for AI development. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Stella, Olivia, thank you both for joining me for this discussion. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me, Will. So you've both worked and examined um, or worked across and examined the, you know, the prospects of artificial intelligence technology from, from a multitude of different angles and through some um, really quite interesting career experiences. Um, and it does seem like a, a technology that's mentioned in relation to almost everything these days. Um, and perhaps most pertinent for um, our audience, it's, it's mentioned quite frequently in relation to geopolitical issues. But before we get into that kind of wider context around artificial intelligence, I, I kind of want to pin down, I guess, the basics and separate a bit of fact from fiction when it comes to AI. So, Stella, I'd like to start with you and, and ask, I guess, what are the applications for AI that we can kind of most practically expect to see arise um, in the near term for, you know, both for Australian society and for the world writ large? A quote that comes to mind for me is one by Jerry Seinfeld, actually. Um, and he likes to talk about innovation quite a lot, but he says a big part of innovation is saying, you know what I'm really sick of? And then that really is a catalyst for a whole lot of insights into things that you would love to use technology to do for you. And so I think it, it's been no surprise to see the accelerating adoption of AI to help automate certain processes. And that is definitely one of those use cases that we see um, very widely adopted. So thinking about automation, thinking about optimization of processes, and there is so much more. And that is actually the, the opportunity that I see ahead for a lot of the organizations out there around how to engage with communities, with citizens, with stakeholders. There's a lot of engagement opportunities that AI unlocks in really enriched ways. 
also tools to empower the employees within the organization. How can those employees within organizations make smarter decisions, look at greater data sets, more complex data sets and make sense of it. So AI can really unlock a lot of decision-making use cases to help augment that creativity and critical thinking of the person with additional data um, centric AI tools. And I, I tend to think of it in four quadrants. If you ever want to kind of consider where could AI help my teams or my organization. The four quadrants for me, are one of them is around that community or customer engagement. Another one is in that employee empowerment. Then the third one is in that operational optimization. And the fourth one is around product and service innovation and how the insights from data can help you innovate and refine the kind of products and services that you create. And I think I've touched on all four of those, but that's really how I think about it. It's a um, quite exciting kind of spectrum, I suppose, of applications that we might be able to imagine. But I guess kind of, and that, and that is a really kind of optimistic vision there, I guess. But I suppose, um, and Olivia, I think you might have some insights into this. As I understand it, one of the great kind of um, barriers to achieving that, that kind of higher level applications of AI is getting um, quality data sets to actually inform um, the development of AI. I mean, what, Olivia, are kind of the key barriers to, to getting that real um, high-quality data that's required? Yeah, that's right. Um, if you look at the current uh, the current family of AI tools that have been developed, they very much sit in the machine learning space and data and good quality data are very important to machine learning. Um, and I think when we talk about um, quality or reliability of data, we have to unpack that a little bit as well. Um, it's not just simply saying, oh, you know, is the data good or bad? It's it, That's a really black and white view of what it is. Um, you know, you can think about the, vol- the volume of the data you have the variety, um, the velocity, how often that data updates and changes. And then obviously um, the fourth V is veracity. So how reliable is it? Is it even the valid data to the problem that you're trying to solve? Um, And I think going back to first principles about fit for purpose data is really important. Some data sets might be very small, but they still might meet your application's purpose and they might still be fit for purpose. And we see that a lot in the national security space in particular. Um, And then there are other applications of AI where you could collect more data, but it might only lead to a marginal improvement on the performance of your AI. So I think really considering it as a case-by-case basis and looking at the problem you're trying to solve um, is critical there. Uh, But more broadly, the barriers in terms of improving that, that data quality of what's been ingested we really need a lot more investment and that's genuine investment in data curation and labeling. Data has been talked about as the new oil and I feel like that's probably an incomplete uh, comparison. But one thing I do like about that analogy is that oil needs refining and a lot of the time we don't think about the refinery aspects of the oil before we start to put the data into AI applications. Um, And what that means is Um, labeling your data, understanding where it comes from, and helping the people working with the data to understand what it comes from. In a lot of organizations, they have this idealized vision of this clear, pristine data lake. Um, 
Unfortunately, what I've seen um, as someone who's sort of worked as a manager and curator of data, most data repositories are nowhere near that clean. They're less lakes and more like muddy swamps where you've got pipes going in and pipes going out carrying God knows what. Um, and not a lot of people keep track of that. Um, so one thing that I've really strongly um, encouraged government departments to think about is keeping, um, taking care of their data, uh, really understanding it, really curating it, particularly when government departments hold such sensitive and unique data sets. One of the innovations that I was lucky to work on in my department, in Department of Home Affairs, is what are called data sheets for data sets. So this is an idea that draws from research by the AI Now Institute at New York University. Um, and they talked about having these data sheets for data sets that just capture the features of a data, uh, of the data set, so that people um, can use it appropriately and are wise to its limitations. So think of it as a nutritional label for data. Um, it's something that Home Affairs is progressively rolling out, and I think it's a really great tool. And I really love that analogy, Olivia, that you shared around oil needs refinement, um, because we think about the some of the greatest challenges and opportunities ahead of us that AI could solve. Well, it's really dependent on the data that's available to really inform and build those models. And so being very aware that there are data deserts out there, meaning large populations of people who are not represented in the data sets in the same ways as other populations. Um, also, large data deserts for certain scenarios or industries, use cases. And so how do we address these data deserts? I think that becomes a really ripe opportunity for community and industry to come together um, and another one is data bias. I mean, through our time, our time hasn't been fair and equitable, and it still isn't. We're always trying to do the best we can and keep evolving our culture, our society, and our, our systems forward. But what we want to really be aware of is our culture really affects the way we collect data. And that means the data bias that is in the historical data sets that we often rely on can quite often uh, bring in biases into some of the insights that AI systems can generate. On the flip side, these AI systems are also those that can help identify the bias and reverse it. But it's an area that we want to really mindfully navigate. How do we mitigate and remove the bias in the data? That's a very um, important area for us to work out. That's a that's a fascinating um, insight into the idea of, of data deserts because it strikes me that... Um, there's probably actually some good reasons why the, some of those deserts exist from um, an ethical point of view. You know, if you're talking about, I suppose, the application of artificial intelligence when it comes to vulnerable groups, even, um, you know, in the application of medicine or even in relation to education and kids, there's kind of privacy considerations at play. So do you think, like, there's an, a certain extent to which some of those data deserts are, are kind of always going to have to be um, left as they are from an ethical point of view? Or can we kind of balance the prospects of artificial intelligence with um, those considerations of, of privacy and vulnerable people? It's a really complex question. And um, I would think about when it comes to ethics and responsible AI, it's a, it's a North Star that we're always going to seek to come closer to. We also want to be mindful that it's a North Star that will keep changing and evolving as we also do as a culture. So we're never going to meet it 100% fully because our own notion of ethics and responsibility are continually changing as well um, as a society. Now, to that question of the data 
deserts, if that was a mindful choice. Maybe for some data sets it was, you know, so we don't capture that um, certain biased perspectives uh, for the data not to be used against individuals. There are also very inadvertent data desert areas or things we did not even realize were important at that point in time that we're only realizing now are important in order to be fully representative of the richness of humanity. Um, one very tangible example I'll share with you is, uh, let's say, model training for object detection. If you wanted to train a model to recognize oranges from apples, um, you will probably feed it a whole lot of images of what an orange is and then a whole lot of images of what an apple is. And what was happening some time ago is that the images being fed into the systems were relatively perfect images. And then what ended up happening is in, in um, let's say, an application that might help someone with visual impairment to recognize an object, if they took a photo of that object, it would tend to be blurry or off-center or they might cut part of the orange off. And because the data set wasn't trained on these, quote, quote unquote, uh, imperfect images, the, the model was not as helpful to those who might be visually impaired. So it's these kind of mindful um, areas of data deserts uh, to ensure that they're representative of broad experiences, broad communities, the diversity of our, um, our minds, our perspectives, our abilities. That's incredibly important in order to build meaningful data and as such meaningful AI systems. Well, can I just jump in um, with um, sort of some work that I was tangentially involved in in terms of the creation of the consumer data right in Australia? And it really goes to um, your question, Will, about whether some data sets are deliberately data deserts. And I think Stella's absolutely right. There's inadvertent data deserts and we kind of want to avoid those because we need to capture the full experience or the, the full um a diversity of human experience in particular. Um, but with the consumer data right, that was balanced against also um, giving individuals the power and the agency to control their data use and, and who their data was being shared with. So um, the consumer data right basically is about sharing data between service providers. Um, it's now being piloted with the banking sector. So you can share your banking data with a prospective bank to get a better deal or to get a better offer. And it is meant to be about empowering the individual now, there were some privacy concerns about how this could play out if, for example, um, I was a victim of, you know, financial crime or identity theft or um, financial abuse by my um, domestic partner. And I didn't want that information shared um, because all of those data sets could still be linked to my abuser. Um, so things like that. And also for children, children might not, not actually, you know, want to have more agency over how their financial data is kept, even if they are underage. Um, so a lot of these um, the competing interests have to be balanced out and it is often at the privacy level um, this this rub point or um, this conflicting dynamic between individual privacy and data rights and uh, aggregate data quality or reliability. So that, that kind of neatly, neatly gets us to the next topic that I, I want to discuss, which is, um, I suppose, the, the role of government and regulation in, in encouraging a, a better AI kind of enabled society. I mean, we've seen Australia and other free market um, states release AI strategies, but when it, when it comes to the adoption of AI, I mean, how much can governments do to um, both encourage adoption and, and encourage the improvement of data, but also to deter 
the uptake of kind of negative applications of AI. Um, Stella, you might have some insights into this regulation question. Um, what we definitely hear from business is that clarity, whether that is across regulation or standards, that clarity helps business to innovate and adopt technology. And um, even during the listening tour, as we've been going city to city, we're really hearing that business is asking for that clarity around what regulation applies to AI systems, what principles and frameworks and standards to use when it comes to uh, development, implementation, and rolling out of AI systems. So it really points us in this direction that clarity through regulation, standards, um, frameworks goes a long way to help business adopt. And as such, I think that would be beneficial for us to consider how can we help create this clarity for business. Um, We also had a couple of additional things around uh, insurance, um, potentially uh, being just as important as this regulatory landscape as businesses navigating um, the questions of how to present certain um, insurance needs to insurance companies. And then in turn, how does insurance actually evaluate the risks and the needed mitigation measures um, for those environments? So it's a really, it's a really complex and rich area. And I think it again highlights the, the need for some systematic structural approaches to help business navigate this unknown space. And also to the second part of your question, to mitigate risks to potential negative uses of AI. Um, so there's really two sides of that um, coin that I would look at. One is creating that clarity for business to accelerate adoption. The other one, uh, other side of that coin is ensuring the responsible, inclusive, uh, trustworthy adoption of AI technologies as well. And that's where, um, you know, whether it's regulation or standards or frameworks, those clear frameworks help business move faster in a clear and trusted way. Olivia, do you have any any insights or comments you want to make on this um, regulatory question? I would probably like to see, um, I completely agree with Stella's point about the regulatory certainty for the private sector. Um, I would like to see government show a bit more leadership in this space as well, just overall in terms of both the public messaging, the narrative, and also how AI is being adopted within government. Mm. Um, I've been a long-time public servant and um, working on data ethics and AI ethics in um, the public sector. It's been interesting to see how they are trying to evolve these ethics principles and standards and frameworks, but it remains very much a conversation about guidance for industry without you know, looking at that guidance internally as well. Because let's face it, there are government departments who are working in AI and working in data analytics and doing some really creative, inventive things with it. Um, and this is the kind of thing that we actually should encourage. But the government um, in 2019 released Australia's eight AI ethics principles, trying to ensure that AI is safe and secure and reliable and trusted by the public. But those principles were ultimately piloted by private companies and not by a single government department, which I thought was was quite odd, um, particularly as I mentioned before, government has access to some really sensitive and unique data sets and government has the ability to really apply those data sets to models that can enhance and augment the delivery of important services to the public. And I think when citizens see AI being used by their government for good, 
it also builds that confidence. There's been multiple public polls done in different countries that show Australians tend to be a little bit more sceptical about AI adoption. And that can really hamper progress. That can really hamper um, our confidence and our trust and our ability to actually scale and make the most use of these technologies to solve some really wicked problems of our time. We'll be right back. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So I want to kind of shift the conversation now to, um, I guess, some of the geopolitical context that's um, probably uh, front of mind to our listeners. You know, AI is, is often cited as kind of being one of the, you know, the great strategic technologies of the of the twenty first century. Um, you know, it was mentioned as part of the the AUKUS uh, pact that's being developed as as one of the focus areas for that agreement. And you know, there's there's this um, kind of idea that whomever dominates um, artificial intelligence technology in the long term between, you know, free and authoritarian states will gain some kind of great historic advantage of how how the century unfolds. But I, I guess what's ambiguous to me and perhaps to some of our listeners are what are the precise uses of AI in that strategic context that make it so important? Is it is it in the military application, its economic application, or in, in the society-wide um, application that kind of gives it that level of importance that it that it's being spoken about in things like AUKUS. And you know, my my area of expertise isn't in the geopolitical dynamics or, or kind of the military question. Um, what what I really see important for us from a global perspective, uh, which I see quite related, is we have some grand challenges and opportunities in front of us as a whole whole kind of humanity around the world. Uh, in fact, if, if you have just seen the recent uh, publication of CSIRO's megatrends, um, the seven megatrends that will shape the next 20 years, these are things that affect every single person on the planet. So I think about some of them, you know, adop- adapting to climate change or uh, the escalating health imperative or having this um, increasing human dimension uh, to engagement. You know, these are kind of grand challenges and opportunities that we cannot tackle alone because our world is so complex. Uh, there is just so much data, so much ambiguity, um, our populations increasingly growing. We're needing grand tools to address these. And so I really see AI as one of those grand tools that can help us navigate these challenges 
at scale and make a difference uh, to actually tackle some of those grand challenges and capture some of those grand opportunities. Um, and particularly that health imperative, this one is so critical. Um, you even think about the the, the people closest to us, um, uh, you know, our families, we're all, we're all aging. Uh, we physically do not have enough people to provide high levels of quality aged care for a growing population. We need help to actually provide that quality care. And so that's where I see grand tools such as AI helping us tackle some of these areas. Stella, I'm so glad that you mentioned the Megatrends report because that's a fantastic bit of research and um, the first one in sort of a 10 years. And it's no surprise to me that automation was a really big part, uh, one of the big megatrends, considering that the principal researcher was also instrumental in the original C- CSIRO um, AI roadmap work. Um, so it was really good to see that release and see that reflected. I completely agree with you that it's a it, these grand challenges require grand technologies and AI is sort of the ultimate in a general purpose technology or a general purpose tool. So it's almost quite difficult to separate out, you know, um, the military, the social and the economic applications because it can be geared towards so many different uses. Um, but in terms of the geopolitical competition, Certainly, you know, we have to talk about China. Um, I think the quote you, um, I think you were verbling uh, Vladimir Putin actually will when he said that um, he who rules AI will rule the world. Um, but what we're seeing is China um, putting in enormous amounts of investment on this mission to actually rule the world with artificial intelligence. Um, their next generation AI development plan 2030 has these grand ambitions to basically be one of the world leaders in AI um, in eight years time. Like eight years is not very far away at all. And very much they think of AI as a general purpose tool and they have a really big agenda around civil military fusion. So that means the kind of tools that they're using in the civil sector are actually applied in military capabilities and use cases. Um, So a really uh, interesting example of this is around uh, facial recognition technologies. Recent um, uh, project by Harvard and London School of Economics researchers shows that there's this symbiosis between China's investment in surveillance technology domestically and its ability to suppress dissent internally. But then that same, the, the data that they're collecting and the innovations um, that and the research and development that they're putting towards these technologies is also conferring a commercial advantage to Chinese AI companies that develop facial recognition technologies and then can then export that overseas. In some cases, they're actually gifting it overseas to partners that they want to, you know, bring into the tent um, from a diplomatic perspective. And that's why you now have Chinese firms actually dominating um, very big corners of the commercial facial recognition market. And that's based on, you know, US tech testing by the National Institute of Science and Technology. So there's definitely this um, intersection of civil and military uses of AI, both for internal dissent, for economic advantage, for export, for diplomatic relations. Um, and the Chinese system is actually really um, really adept at knitting together these different goals, um, particularly when you have a centrally directed planned economy, right? When you have a development plan on AI that comes down from on high by the Communist Party, um, you see the money and the investment flowing to the same direction. 
But what's um, interesting, I suppose, is the different metrics that you see floating around to to measure this um, relative um, kind of competition or ranking of where different countries are when it comes to um, supremacy or otherwise with with AI. I think it was a um, Stanford has an AI index, and and for this year, they've suggested that the US is well ahead of China when it comes to investment in AI, but. Um, I mean, going going back to kind of what you've just said, Olivia, um, we know that you know Chinese agencies and firms have access to kind of exponentially more granular data when it comes to tr- building their AI systems. So between, I guess, these two reference points of either measuring investment in AI or in or measuring kind of the availability of data, like what what should we actually be looking at when we're trying to assess? Um, whether it's China, US, um, or any other country's relative um, progress when it comes to AI. Um, Stella, what do you think are kind of the best um, best metrics we should look out for to, to get a sense of that? And there is no one perfect way. In fact, um, even if you look at that Stanford AI index, it's a summation of several different measures. I think it's 13 or something like that. Um, and uh, even if you look at Australia, Australia is very highly rated in terms of AI research, fifth in the world. Uh, but then if you look at the economic adoption and impact from AI, we're 11th in the world. And um, if you even go d- deeper into some of those metrics, you look at community understanding of AI, we're below global average. So there are just so many different ways of cutting these insights and that there is no one perfect way. It really does remind me of um, a, a book I, um, I read some time ago. It's called AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. And it talks about what is this age that we're in right now when it comes to AI, because most of AI was already invented in you know the 50s, the 60s. Um, the age we're in now is the age of implementation. And it's about the the effectiveness um, of business um, and organized broader organizations to actually be able to adopt AI technology and innovate, create new uh, outcomes with the technology. And so that's what I would really think about right now as one of the key measures of success is this adoption and innovation with AI. Um, another very important signal that um, we, we heard during the listening tour is community understanding of AI as um, as something very important. And in particular, we heard several businesses who said that their own innovation was actually slowed because their community uh, that they're operated in and their customers did not understand what AI actually was. And so whenever the word AI would come up, it would actually be more of a fear trigger for the community um, rather than actually seeing what the use case was that was being created. And so I think that that's another really important metric to look at. I don't even know how we measure that, but another really important index is community understanding of AI because it will affect the speed at which government, business, and the broader community can actually experience the benefits of AI. No, that's a um, really important observation. I mean, Olivia and I have, have both you know, worked across government and, and I think both had our own respective um, encounters with um, hesitancy within uh, particularly the national security community in terms of adopting AI. So I suppose it's there's different communities of practice that have probably got very different um, attitudes to, to AI. Um, Olivia, did, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, um, uh, metrics. It's, it's a grand <laughs> question, right? Um, 
I, I completely agree with Stella that there's not a one singular metrics, uh, um, but a couple of things that I would sort of look out for. And also, I'd, I'd also feel like some of the metrics can be a little bit misleading. So, for example, um, it's often cited that China is now the producer of the largest number of AI-related patents, which is great. Well, not great, depending on whose perspective you're thinking about. But those patents, however, don't often get renewed. So in terms of what um, Stella pointed to about actually adoption, scaling and commercialization, just because you filed the patent and if you don't renew it in three years' time or whatever or when it's lapsed, it just suggests that they're patenting like crazy but not actually um, it's not actually leading to commercialization or scale. So that's one, it's an interesting one to watch. Um, the other one is the one you mentioned about data, um, Will. So there's some interesting research from uh, Jeffrey Ding at Oxford, I believe, um, who talks about how data might have, um, China might have um, the leg up on the volume of data, but the diversity of their data actually lags in some aspects, particularly because now with the geopolitical tensions you see internationally, lots more countries are hesitant about having data shared with China or having their data collected onshore going to Chinese firms. So that's another one to watch where um, they may have more volume, but what about the quality? Um, the Chinese government also is very centralized in the way they manage data. So they hoard a lot of data um, and prevent commercial partners from using it. And that's quite a different dynamic compared to a place like Australia, where we have schemes like the Data Access and Transparency Act, um, which specifically is geared towards sharing data sets for the public good and including for commercial benefit and advantage if it comes to that. So it's a really different dynamic there. Um, the last one I would um, have a think about is also, I mean, it's hard to measure when China isn't going to be the most transparent about what they're using AI yeah. for or not using AI for, right? I think we can probably say that they're experimenting with AI for military targeting. They'd be nuts not to be, to be frank. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it's a little bit hard to gauge. But some of what I worry about in this whole conversation is when we focus on who is winning the AI race, it can gradually become a race to the bottom. And we really need to be mindful that we should not be trying to win this race at all costs, especially when you're talking about a general purpose technology. Is it important for the US to beat China on every aspect of AI? I'm sure it isn't. I'm sure it's not even realistic. Mm. So I have, we have to think about well, what is it that we're actually trying to protect? What are the risks we're trying to mitigate? And what is the consequence if we go too hard in this global geopolitical competition around AI? Um, I, I do worry about where this conversation can lead us. Do we think, for example, that the United States will ever be the global leaders on natural language processing for Mandarin Chinese? I don't think so. Do we need to be? Is that in our strategic goal? I, I can't imagine why that would be sort of, you know, a critical feature of this AI landscape that we're talking about and, and what kind of geopolitical advantage that might confer. And, this, and certainly to carry on your point, there's, there's certainly going to be applications of AI that we would see as um, 
you know, counter to our our um, values as a society that, that even though the technology may at some point enable us to do certain things, we would just not want to um, countenance that. And I guess that gets us to another theme I wanted to um, discuss while I have you both, which is the application of AI in a, in a law enforcement and, and national security context, which I think is where it does rub up against a myriad of the different issues we've discussed today, you know, the quality of data issues, the ethical application issues, the regulatory issues. But I guess kind of practically speaking, you know, most of us have kind of heard about the utility of AI for law enforcement and national security when it comes to kind of discrete systems and applications. So things like um, facial recognition at airports, other other biometrics, um, which are doubtless kind of, you know, incredibly useful at, I guess, at what you describe a tactical level. But when it comes to being able to use AI um, at that perhaps higher level of complexity when it comes to supporting analysis um, and even supporting prediction, I mean, where are we at in the development of those sorts of um, systems and where do you think we're likely to get in, in incorporating artificial intelligence into, um, say, intelligence analysis or prediction that might be used for a law enforcement uh, context? And it's an interesting balance because um, when I when I think about the scenarios of AI that we love, it's when it's helped us find, for example, Cleo Smith in West Australia, where um, you know AI enabled rapid triangulation and search across mobile phone data, some license plates, and I, I believe even some CCTV footage. Uh, but essentially, it allowed us to make sense of and bring together various data to find Cleo. And we love that example. And that example was enabled by this technology that is AI. On the other side is we want to feel our freedom and we don't want to feel that we're under surveillance. And so um, I think this is an area where thinking about the governance of AI, of data, thinking about laws and standards to ensure that we have that freedom and privacy, while also allowing agility to for us to help each other out, you know, let's, how do we have those technologies that can act on situations that, for example, Cleo was in? So I think it's a really fine balance. And I think there's a, um, there is a really uh, needed part there in terms of standards, laws and, and governance. Yeah, I absolutely agree. That needs to be a fine balance. And it needs to be a balance that we come to through a process of public discourse. Mm. And I suppose that's part of what's a little bit worrying um, about the uses of AI in national security contexts. Um, this was probably the focus of my research um, when I uh, had a, I won a Fulbright scholarship um, to study AI and national security um, in the US in 2019. And it was really interesting to look at the use cases in law enforcement contexts in the United States. And unfortunately, a lot of them had gone horribly wrong. It had caused people to feel like they were under constant persistent surveillance and unjustifiable breaches of their privacy. It had led to entire communities feel like they were being marginalised and discriminated against. And it caused a lot of friction between um, citizens and the people that they should ordinarily be trusting to keep them safe. That, you know, the, the police or the uh, judges or the juries that were meant to be serving the public. Um, it created a very antagonistic relationship. 
Um, it also led to a huge amount of disproportionate power for technology companies who would sell these off-the-shelf AI products to a law enforcement agency or an intelligence agency who couldn't really lift the hood onto what was going on behind these AI tools that just trusted its outputs, um, perhaps provided too much trust in those outputs. Um, we have to be mindful of, you know, the, the first US ban on facial recognition um, technologies being used in public spaces happened in Oakland, California. And this is an area that had been under federal monitoring of the police force for discrimination against um, coloured groups um, in, in the communities for, I think, 12 years. You know, it was 12 years of federal monitoring um, to make sure that the police force were not discriminating against African-Americans and yet they still deployed facial recognition technologies there in that location. Um, so I feel like it, in some cases the promise of AI is incredibly great for law enforcement and national security, the ability to pass through very complex data sets, the ability to find patterns, um, the ability to um, connect the dots in a way that human intelligence analysts can't. Um, but I think we need to really proceed with a high degree of caution because the consequence of something going wrong is incredibly high in national security contexts. Um, but I also, you know, having as someone who has worked in the national security field for close to a decade, I also appreciate that there's understandable levels of secrecy and security that need to be brought to bear to these uses of AI. We can't always be 100% transparent about how we're using these technologies if we want to keep ahead of the bad guys, right? Mm. What I would be concerned about is that predictive ability that you're talking about, Will. Um, in analytics, I think there's a very legitimate argument to be made about using AI to augment human decision-making. Um, and as Stella has said, a lot of that holds a huge amount of promise, right? Um, but it also keeps a, a human operator very much in the loop and on the loop for those decisions so that there's ultimately accountability. On prediction, though, that's a, that's a slightly more ambitious field where we have to say, well, how good is the AI at actually predicting an outcome? And in national security contexts, do we even have a counterfactual? For example, if you created an AI model to predict the next terrorist attack, obviously law enforcement has to intervene before the terrorist attack takes place. But how could you have known that that attack would have taken place if you hadn't intervened? It's a bit of a circular problem, a logical argument to having. And, and Stella, I suppose this is where I guess the national security and law enforcement applications of AI are kind of illustrative to me of a of a, a larger question I have about AI generally. You know, um, Olivia spoke about our ability to get under the hood and actually understand how these systems are, are making decisions. And I guess given that the utility the reliability and that trust you were speaking about that we have in AI, like that rests in human beings being able to kind of understand and verify the data that the systems are using. So is there kind of like a cognitive ceiling uh, on, on how far AI systems can go in terms of being used in the real world? Because at, at the moment, if we, if we can't keep up with how and why an AI system is making particular decisions, is that, is that not likely the point in which it becomes probably you know, irresponsible or not, or not particularly useful to even use an AI system? It's important to consider that our world is already so complex. There's so much data out there that our human cognition is not keeping up. So we ourselves just, uh, if you look at the human perception, 
we're not able to comprehend the vast amount of data out there and all the insights that come from it. And so I see AI as a way for us to actually be able to understand that data and continue having those decision-making opportunities and continue exercising those perception, critical thinking, creative faculties that we have as humans because the data set is out of our perceptive possibility. Mm. Um, now, the our perception over time, and I, I realize these are pretty large timescales, it has been changing. And so I think about, um, you know, I don't know, several hundred years ago when maybe in some cultures herbal medicine might have seemed by as magic or even witchcraft. And that's a way of perceiving that context in a certain way uh, that led to certain judgments or thoughts or decisions. Uh, I also know some cultures thought the moon was uh, a block of cheese, right? Or some thought that it was a moon up there. And so the more we learn, our perception actually changes. And um, one that I've myself experienced is um, when my great grandmother, uh, when she was still alive, she used to wish good evening to the news anchor on TV because she thought that if she could see and hear him, then he could see and hear her. And so this was her getting to know a new technology. And so I wouldn't put it past us that our own perception will continue to evolve. In fact, um, while I was in Canberra, um, I was really intrigued to to find uh, a, a research team um, that was really looking at team perception and dynamics in submarine environments, right? And it's looking at how AI tools can actually help to complement and heighten the perception of the individual that's working in that environment. Um, so I don't know if there is an absolute ceiling. Uh, I mm. think we will change our relationships with data, with insights and the technology around us, and it may evolve over time. But there is a complexity to the current data environment that's already beyond anything that we can ourselves understand. That's um, uh, That illustration of your um, great-grandmother speaking to the newsreader is is an interesting one because I do wonder if with the application of AI, uh, you may one one day be able to hold conversation with the newsreader. Through. <laughs> We're already talking to our Google assistants and that sort of thing, so there's a beautiful kind of illustration there. I think also you're talking about sort of very complex, um, I guess, black box AI, right? Like, yeah. um, But not all AI fits into that black box. You know, that there's, there are some things where you can say, well, we put these data sets together and therefore it, you know, spat out this outcome. And you can sort of have a reasonable high level understanding and go, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So not, not all of it is the really unexplainable end of the AI spectrum. Um, I guess the, you know, the cognitive ceiling question is really interesting because I think Stella's right that um, our understanding evolves over time, but also our acceptance just evolves over time in our relationship with technology. I have no idea how a jet engine works. Doesn't mean I haven't been on multiple flights and I'm gearing, go, you know, to go overseas as soon as COVID allows. So, you know, there's a, there's, does, do you need to have that cognitive ceiling reach before you have trust? I'm not sure the two are necessarily um, correlated sometimes. Um, and I guess, you know, the, the explainability problem is is a good one. Um, but in, in national security, I think it's also more about the proportionality. So if you have a, an AI that performs extremely well to keep Australian citizens safe, there will be a sense of, you know, we will be willing to use it even if we don't exactly know how it works, right? Um, because it's high stakes game. 
Um, on the other hand, if you mass deploy surveillance technologies and AI in public spaces, there's a problem of trust and proportionality that surfaces. Like we had in the recent example where we found out that Bunnings, uh, the good guys, and Kmart were using facial recognition um, potentially, uh, supposedly to deter thefts and to um, crack down on antisocial behaviour. I mean, it seemed like I, I wasn't aware that those three stores were a hotbed for antisocial behaviour that really justified the use of these technologies for a, a, what was ostensibly a security goal. And I recently came across um, an OECD report. It, it's called, um, I think it's called uh, AI Trustworthy AI Tools Comparison Framework. And it summarizes some of the tools already available out there to help unpack the box, the black box, um, you know, the tools that can help uh, with that explainability, the transparency, the fairness. And so there is a lot of work being done in this space. And already a lot has, uh, a lot has been created to help folks really get to that level of uh, granularity and visibility into AI systems. There is more to do, um, but I would say, like, take a look at that one and see what's already available to help you really get detailed insights into what AI systems um, are doing, why they're doing it, and, and ensuring that they're built with fairness and equity. And actually, one of those tools, I'm not sure if it's in the OECD report, but I have heard about it, um, is actually a chatbot. So you have one AI doing the thing that it's trained to do and another AI kind of monitoring that AI and actually engaging in a conversation or engaging in a process of reasoning between two AI chatbots. So at the end of the conversation, you can understand the logical process or the decision points that were made to lead to that conclusion. It's really fascinating and creative use of AI to, I guess, govern AI. I have to look at that one. I haven't come across that one. Thank you. Well, uh, Stella, Olivia, I'm, I'm mindful that um, we've had a really generous usage of both of your time and, and experts and insights. Um, so thank you both uh, for taking the time to share your knowledge with our audience. Um, it sounds like this is going to be a remarkable experience exciting sometimes perhaps a little bit scary change that we're all going to be living through but um i think you, you've both injected a great deal of kind of um optimism and hope into what we can expect um these new remarkable technologies to do to improving our society um and uh so thank you both for taking the time to speak with me and with our audience at the national security college great to be here thank you thank you so much well it was a pleasure